This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. In order to really understand insulin and to really understand diabetes, the disease, um, we first have to talk about carbohydrates. When we think about the foods that we eat for energy, there are three different uh, groups. We have carbohydrates, proteins, and fats. We think about it in three different groups. Um, in, in the disease of diabetes, what's most important is the carbohydrate. I think carbohydrates have gotten a really bad reputation um, in the last 10 years. Everyone's going low carb, carbs are bad, carb free is better. But truly, if you look at this slide, you'll see that so many healthy foods are carbohydrates. Um, and so it's great to include carbohydrates in your diet. And it's important to know what they are as someone with diabetes trying to manage your blood sugars. So what happens to carbohydrates when we eat them? So say you're eating an apple, it's mostly carbohydrate. You're going to start chewing it. And in your mouth, there are actually enzymes or chemicals that help to start break down that apple. Your teeth also do a mechanical sort of breakdown of the apple. Then you swallow the apple and it goes down the esophagus, which is this tube here that connects your mouth to your stomach. And then your stomach is full of uh, acid that breaks down that apple even further into smaller bits. And then the final parts of digestion happen in the intestines. So first from the stomach, the apple will travel to the small intestine, which is these skinny tubes, where the carbohydrates are actually broken down into a sugar. A sugar is just a very small, it's the basic unit of a carbohydrate. And a carbohydrate is a bunch of sugar all sort of attached together. And so your intestine does the job of taking that carbohydrate, the apple, the piece of bread, that bowl of rice, and breaking it down into individual molecules of sugar. And the main sugar type that we get from carbohydrates is glucose. And glucose is just one type of sugar. So we got our sugar from our carbohydrate. Now, this is where you have to sort of imagine um, what happens to, the, to, 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 to molecules in the body. So the glucose, so this is the sugar, is transported, literally, from the intestines, okay, where they're being digested, into the bloodstream. There's a network of, of, of blood vessels that are around the intestines and around every organ. And so it takes that sugar into the bloodstream. And the bloodstream in your body, the, the arteries and the veins of your body, carry the blood. And they are like the highway for the body. Part of its job is to transport things like energy molecules like sugar to different parts of the body that need it. And every single cell in your body needs energy to work. And so and glucose is one of the main energies, uh, uh, types of energy it uses to, to function, to, have, to be able to do its job. This is the part where it gets a little complicated. Okay, so you got the glucose. It's gone from your intestine. It went into the bloodstream. Your body wants to use it for energy. The pancreas's job is to sense 
that there's been a load of sugar delivered to the bloodstream, the pancreas can sense that, and its job is to make and release insulin in response to that influx of sugar. So let's take a closer look at insulin from the pancreas. So what is insulin? Insulin is a hormone. And you think about hormones, think about like teenagers with raging hormones. Testosterone is a hormone. Estrogen is a hormone. But insulin is also a hormone. And what is a hormone? It is simply a chemical messenger. So it's made from one organ. It's released by that organ. It travels to other parts of the body and tells other organs what to do. It's a chemical messenger. Okay. Um, insulin is made in the pancreas, and what I'm showing you here is that pan- the pancreas lies here, so pretty close to the stomach and the small intestine. Here's the liver for reference. And if you were to look at a closer uh, section of the pancreas, so here's the pancreas here. Um, if you were to slice the pancreas and look at it head on, what you will see are there are, there are cells that make insulin. And the cells that make insulin are called beta cells. So if you ever, I don't know, learned a little bit more about diabetes, you'll learn about uh, the concept of a beta cell. And the beta cell makes insulin in response to the sugar that it sees in circulation. Um, And you can see here on this cartoon rendition of the cross-section of the pancreas, the beta cells here that make insulin are, you know, are blue in color and I guess are supposed to be healthy. Um, and in type 1 diabetes, which is a, is a disease where you lose your beta cells, you can, the beta cells are now gray and, and apparently dead, um, but the beta cells are, are literally lost in type 1 diabetes. So the cells that make insulin are deficient in diabetes. Um, so so in, in a, non, a person without diabetes, the pancreas will make insulin. This insulin will tell the organs to take up the sugar. The most important organs that take up sugar are the muscle, okay? So the muscle takes up about 80% of the sugars that you get from your, the food, okay? Because the muscles are, they need to do a lot of work and they need a lot of sugar. The other important organ is the liver, okay? The liver does a lot of things in the body, but one important task is that it stores the extra sugar from your meal so that you can tap into it when you're not eating for a long period of time. So it stores the extra sugar. It's the only place where you store extra sugar is the liver. Um, The muscles can store sugar, but it can't share it with other organs. The liver can do it. It can release the extra sugar that it's stored and give it to other organs. So the muscle and the liver respond very powerfully to insulin because insulin tells the muscle and the liver take up the sugar that's coming from this food. Um, And insulin, this is an analogy you might have heard from a diabetes educator. This is is the way we like to explain it. But insulin is kind of like a key. And it opens the door to the cell so the glucose can go inside. And unless the insulin is there, the glucose cannot actually get inside the muscle or the liver cell where it needs to be for energy. Okay, so insulin is like a, it permits the uptake of glucose into the organs. It also permits the uptake of fats into fat cells. So insulin does a few more things, but the most important thing is it allows your body to take up glucose into the organs that need it. 
Now, when you don't have insulin, the organs cannot take up the glucose. And so instead of the glucose going inside the muscle and in going inside the liver, it stays in the bloodstream in circulation. That's why when you test your blood sugars, when you have diabetes, it's high, right? There's a lot of sugar in the bloodstream. It's not where it's supposed to be. It's in the bloodstream and not inside the organs where it's meant to be used. Does that make sense? And so your body has a high concentration of glucose in, in the bloodstream where you can test it. And because the body doesn't really like to have a lot of glucose in the bloodstream where it's not really meant to be, it tries to get rid of it. And so it tries to urinate it out. And that's why when you have high blood sugars, one of the symptoms is a lot of urination and dehydration and then thirst. Okay, so your body's trying to compensate for the high sugar levels in the bloodstream. Furthermore, the, the, blood, the blood vessels are not meant to harbor all that glucose, and the glucose does damage to those blood vessels, and that's what leads to the complications of diabetes. And so the small blood vessels of the eyes, the small blood vessels of the kidneys, um, the small blood vessels that, fuel, that feed the nerves get damaged early on, then the big vessels that supply the heart and the brain get, also get damaged because the sugars themselves are really not meant to be in the bloodstream. But that's where they lay when there's not enough insulin around. Okay. Not to get too technical, this is my only graph, but I'll explain it um, in detail. So this is kind of like the only way I can think of to describe how insulin is released from the pancreas in a, in a time fashion. And so on the y-axis, the vertical axis here of the graph is insulin production by the pancreas. Um, and then on the, the horizontal axis here are different events, breakfast, lunch, dinner, and overnight. The first thing to know is that um, I told you that insulin is important for that carbohydrate delivery from food. But actually, you need insulin 24 hours a day. Okay, um, So even when you're not eating, your pancreas is making a little bit of insulin. And that little bit of insulin does a couple important jobs. And one is to, to make sure the, remember the liver that keeps store of that extra sugar? It makes sure that the liver isn't spewing out glucose when it's not supposed to be. Okay, so that's one job of the background insulin. But you actually have insulin in your body at all times, 24 hours a day. And I call that the background insulin. Now, at mealtimes, you obviously need bursts of insulin for the carbohydrate load that's getting delivered to the bloodstream. So you get mealtime insulin, so long as your meal contains carbohydrate. And so there's basically two different sort of insulin needs. You have your background insulin need, and you have your mealtime insulin need. And your pancreas does a very good job of, of, of releasing insulin exactly when you need it, shutting off insulin production exactly when you need it to keep your blood sugar range in pretty narrow. So if you don't have diabetes, your blood sugars may only range between 80 and 110 or 80 and 120 all the time because the insulin is constantly being adjusted to address the influx of sugar. Okay. So what happens in diabetes? So diabetes results from insulin insufficiency of some sort. In type 1 diabetes, you have a total or near lack of insulin production 
due to that autoimmune attack of the beta cells. And I think Maureen explained that last week. But in type 1 diabetes, your body thinks that the beta cell is the enemy, just like a bacteria is an enemy or a virus is an enemy. And so it attacks the beta cell as if it's the enemy, and it does a very good job doing it. And so you really are left with no beta cells that function and no ability to make insulin. So that's type 1 diabetes. Type 2 diabetes is actually much more complicated, and we don't quite understand it fully. But the first important part of type 2 diabetes is what's called insulin resistance. So your body is making insulin, and it may be making a lot of insulin, but for some reason, for complicated reasons, at the site of the muscle and at the site of the liver, it's not doing its job. Like, so it's the key that's supposed to open the door, but the key isn't working. Um, and so your body makes a ton of insulin, but it's just not doing its job. So it's as if you're not making insulin, but it's really more insulin resistance. Okay? And then after you've had diabetes for some time, you actually start to lose beta cells as well in type 2 diabetes. So in type 2 diabetes, there is a variable lack of beta cells as well. It's not as total and extreme as it is in type 1 diabetes, um, but it, you do lose beta cells over time. Um, not everyone does, and the, the loss of beta cells is different from person to person. But many people who have had diabetes for 20 and 30 years have probably very little beta cell function left. Okay, so they're kind of like a type 1. All right. So if you can't make insulin because of the disease of diabetes, you can take it. And that's what this is, the rest of the talk is about. So if we can't, we can take insulin exogenously. Exogenous is just a, a word for, you know, from outside of you. So you take insulin that came from outside of you. You take manufactured insulin. You can take insulin if you can't make enough. Okay. And insulin is always injected. Um, I'm showing a picture of the skin surface. We always inject insulin into this, what we call subcutaneous, under the, under the cutaneous, under the skin, in that fatty space under the skin. We inject it, um, and the insulin molecules you know, get injected in, in a big sort of dose. So you might take 20 units of insulin. So 20 units of insulin are sitting there in that, in that skin, under the skin. And over time, the insulin molecules actually separate out and become single molecules, and they enter circulation. So they enter the bloodstream so they can do its job in the bloodstream. Okay. There are different ways to inject insulin. Um, the most you know, classic way is the vial and syringe. You drop the insulin in a syringe, and you inject yourself. There are newer insulin pens that probably a lot of you are familiar with where you, it's a pre-filled pen, and it's basically the same thing as a vial, but it's pre-filled, and so you don't have two things that you need to, to deal with. And then a lot of people with type 1 diabetes use an insulin pump. Um, and so this is essentially just a different way of delivering insulin under the skin. There is a catheter or a tube that's attached to the person. That tube connects to a reservoir of insulin in this m machine called the pump. Um, and the pump has a piston, a mechanical piston, that's constantly pushing a little bit of insulin all day into the person. Um, and then when they're eating, they can deliver a bolus of insulin. So it can, they can give your, themselves some units of insulin right away for food. Um, so a lot of people with type 1 diabetes are on insulin pumps. But essentially, um, the only way to get insulin is to inject it. There are hormones that you can take by mouth 
like thyroid hormone or estrogen or something like that. But insulin does not, uh, cannot withstand the degradation that happens in the stomach. And so you have to bypass the digestive tract and give it um, what we call subcutaneously or give it by injection. Okay. So there are lots of different types of insulin. Um, but the main differences between the types of insulin on the market is really the timing of the insulin. Okay, so I'm putting down that graph that I showed you before of um, the insulin needs, where you have your base, your background insulin needs, and you have your mealtime insulin needs. Um, and so there are different types of insulins on the market, and they differ by their timing. Okay, so the first class of insulins are long-acting insulins. Long-acting insulins deliver insulin over many hours. So one injection of that insulin will last you 12 to 36 hours, depending on the brand. Okay, um, And it mimics your background insulin needs. So if you give yourself, for example, 24 units of Lantus, which is a common background insulin or long-acting insulin, those 24 units, theoretically, are going into your system evenly over 24 hours, so maybe one unit per hour on average. Okay, So that 24 units you inject all at one time are slowly trickling in one unit at a time over 24 hours. That's long-acting insulin, and it covers your background insulin needs. The second type of insulins is the shorter-acting insulins. Um, so one injection delivers insulin for a short time, and when I say short time, I mean somewhere over two to six hours, okay? And it mimics your mealtime insulin needs. So there's just two types of insulins, long insulin and shorter insulin. And the long insulins cover the background insulin need. The shorter insulins cover your mealtime insulin needs. The other insulin I didn't put up here is a premixed insulin. It's a mixture of a long-acting and a short-acting in one shot. It's called 70-30 insulin is a, is a common type um, where they mix two types into one injection. So I'm just going to go over some of the long-acting insulins that you've probably heard of. And I put up generic names, apologies for that, but um, I'll go over all of them. So Glargine is Lantus. It's also Bazaglar. Um, it's the, probably the commonest long-acting insulin that we use. It takes one hour for the insulin to actually start working. Time to onset is one hour. And duration of action of Glargine is 24 hours. Okay, so Glargine lasts 24 hours. Detimer, also known as Levimir, um, also onset one hour, and it lasts a little bit less than 24 hours, depending on the dose. Okay. Um, NPH, it is the oldest long-acting insulin out there, but it works pretty well, um, and uh, it takes one to two hours to start working, but only lasts about 12 to 18 hours. So if you need 24-hour background insulin coverage, often you need to give NPH twice a day. Okay. Um, and then Degladec is the newest long-acting insulin. It's called Draceba. It actually lasts 36 hours, so it lasts a very long time. You still have to give it once a day. The FDA says you have to give it once a day, but it does last 36 hours. So those are your long-acting insulins. If you have type 2 diabetes, you typically are, if you're on insulin, you tend to be on a long-acting insulin in addition to some non-insulin medications. 
Okay, so then there are the short-acting insulin. So um, regular insulin is a terrible name, it's, it, but it's a type of insulin. Regular insulin, there's two different brands. The time to onset is 30 minutes. Um, it peaks, so the peak means like when it's acting the strongest. It acts the strongest about two to three hours after injection, and it lasts about six hours. And then Aspar, Lispro, and Glulysine, also known as Novolog, Humalog, and Apidra, are all, the timing is all about identical. They take about 15 minutes to start working, and they peak at about one hour after administration, and they last about three to four hours. Okay, so it's important to know when these things are acting, especially when it comes to mealtime insulin, because you want to time it well with your food. Okay. You can imagine if you give the mealtime insulin well after you're done eating, okay, there's going to be a big mismatch between when the sugars are coming into the body and when the insulin is acting really strong. Okay? So you're going to end up with high sugars right after your meal and maybe even a low sugar later because it's strongly acting an hour late, you know, after and you've already waited till after the meal to, to inject. So, so timing of that mealtime insulin is very, very important. Okay. So, for example, if you had type 1 diabetes and you didn't make any insulin at all, we would give you an insulin regimen that would consist of a long-acting insulin to be taken about once a day and, and mealtime and short-acting insulin to be taken with every meal. Okay, so that would be your full insulin replacement regimen if you had no capacity to make insulin at all. For type 2 diabetes, um, you can often just be on the long-acting insulin in conjunction with the non-insulin medications that Dr. Kroon reviewed. Um, However, if your diabetes is pretty advanced and you're not making much insulin, you too can also be on short-acting as well as long-acting insulins together. Um, so just some tips about how to take insulin successfully. So with the long-acting insulins, it's really best to, to stick with a time each day that you're going to take the long-acting insulin and not deviate too much from that time. So remember, the insulin lasts 24 hours. So if you take um, your Glargine or Lantus at 8 p.m., that is going to last till 8 p.m. the next day. But if on that next day you don't take it till 12 a.m., you've gone four hours without that background insulin. So it's gonna mess up with your sugars a little bit. So it's really good habit to pick a time of the day and be pretty consistent with that time. You don't have to be anal about it, but like pretty consistent with that time, okay? The dose of that basal insulin is really going to be determined by your physician, okay? It's basal, long-acting insulin is not one where you change the dose every day. So, like, based on your blood sugars, you give this much or that much. You, you kind of discuss with your doctor what the dose should be, and you... It's fairly consistent from day to day with some exceptions. And the dose of the basal insulin can be very different from person to person. So one person can be on five units a day and another person can be on 100 units a day. And the amount of insulin really depends on your weight, how much insulin resistance you have if you have type 2 diabetes, and how much or how little your own pancreas can make. Okay, so it's very different from person to person. You really can't compare your long-acting insulin dose with your friend's long-acting insulin doses. No comparisons at all. Um, with the mealtime insulin, again, it's really important to give that mealtime insulin 
before you start eating, okay? So that the timing of the insulin matches the digestion of your food. Um, so you want those, the glucose rise to be in sync with that insulin rise um, as you take it. Very, very important. The dose of the mealtime insulin can vary, though. Not like long-acting insulin. It can vary, and it varies by the amount of carbohydrates that you eat for your meal. So the more carbohydrate you eat in a meal, the more insulin you need for that meal. So it's really important to use mealtime insulin successfully. You really need to understand carbohydrates. What are they? How do I estimate or count them in the foods that I eat? Because if you have like a mealtime insulin dose that is like, say, five units with every meal, that works so long as the carbohydrates you eat at every meal are exactly the same. But if you're going to vary them and have like zero carbs for breakfast, just have bacon and eggs, and then have a plate of spaghetti for lunch, the same dose of insulin is not going to work for both meals. In one meal, it'll be too much, and in another meal, it may be too little. So it's really important to understand carbohydrates if you expect to use mealtime insulin successfully. Okay. Um, the dose of the mealtime insulin also depends on the insulin resistance in your body and how much or little insulin your own pancreas makes. And so it's a discussion you have with your doctor. But the thing that you work on at home is really understanding the carbohydrates, you know, of course, in conjunction with a dietitian that helps you to learn all those things. It's very important to understand carbohydrates um, to successfully use mealtime insulin. Okay. So... So lastly, I'm going to talk about sliding scale insulin because I think a lot of patients are given scales, like insulin scales when they're given insulin. Um, And an insulin scale kind of looks like this. So like if your blood sugar is under 150, that's great. So you don't give any insulin. And the type of insulin you're told to give is usually a short-acting or rapid-acting insulin. If your your sugars start to get higher, you take one unit. If it's even higher, you take two units. If it's even higher than that, you take three units. It's a scale. It's probably something that many people in this audience have seen, an insulin scale. It's really good to be able to have a scale like this because guess what? Your blood sugar is not always going to be perfect. And if it's 300, you want to be able to know how to bring that 300 blood sugar down to a good level, okay? However, the insulin sliding scale alone is an insufficient insulin regimen to use by itself, okay? And the reason is, is because this insulin is only given in reaction to a high sugar, Okay, so if you're about to eat a meal and your blood sugar is 100, you don't give insulin even though you might need it for the meal. Okay, so, so, so imagine someone with type 1 diabetes sitting at a meal. They're going to have some carbohydrate. They test their blood sugar. It's, it's fine. It's 100. They're going to eat some carbohydrates. You know their sugar is going to rise. They should be taking some for that food. But if they only go based off on a scale... They're not going to take anything at first. They're going to have to wait until the blood sugar is high and then take it. So you're always kind of catching up to the high sugar. So the scale itself doesn't prevent a high sugar from happening. It waits for the high sugar to happen and then tells you to take the insulin. So um, this is sort of the caution with using sliding scale alone to try to manage your blood sugars. Um, 
And I think that sliding scale is very important, and correctional insulin is very important, but it's best to be used in conjunction with a proper mealtime insulin dose. Um, so if you're using mealtime insulin, yeah, check your sugar, add some correction on top of it to get your blood sugar, your high blood sugar down. Um, but if you just use sliding scale alone as your short-acting insulin regimen, you're always going to be paying catch-up. Okay. So I'm just going to end here with my take-home points. Um, so insulin is necessary to utilize the energy we obtain from carbohydrates. Okay. Um, the insulin is a hormone. It's a chemical messenger that tells your body to store that glucose, to take it up and to be able to use it for energy. Diabetes type 1 or type 2 or type 3 is characterized by a relative or absolute lack of insulin production. There are long-acting and short-acting synthetic insulins that we use, so the timing of the insulin is what gives it its character. And taking insulin in a way that mimics as best you can your natural insulin production is the best strategy for keeping your glucoses in a healthy range. Do it like the pancreas would do it um, is, is another way to think about it. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.